Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, my name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm very excited to be joined by... Nike Fajors, a uh, member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And welcome to another episode of The Invisible Men, when we have an opportunity to celebrate Black excellence. Uh, members of our community who aren't well known, but who are doing amazing things in our community. And I can't think of uh, very few folks who uh, identify with that uh, definition of Black excellence. We have the honor of having Bob Woodson uh, join us uh, for this episode. Bob Woodson, uh, for some of you who may not know, for 40 years uh, of his life, uh, he founded years ago the Woodson Center that has worked with thousands of young leaders throughout our country in communities fighting crime, fighting homelessness, and yet developing solutions from within. And Bob has been an incredible leader in show, carving a path for how communities can take control of their own destiny. And we're just very excited to have Bob join us. So Bob, welcome to The Invisible Men. Pleased to be here, pleased to be here. Excellent, so Bob, you have a ton going on. Uh, uh, we, we happen to be taping on the week that I actually had the privilege of working with you to launch something called the 1776 Unites Curriculum. What, what, what is that? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's, a, it's, it's about um, in the New York Times, um, some black journalists came together and they, they authored a, uh, a series of essays that makes the claim that America's real birthright is 1619. That's the time when 20 black slaves came here. And therefore, America, uh, because half of its uh, original uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence were slave owners, and therefore that contradiction means that the, that the document that they, that they coined, Declaration of Independence, is therefore invalid, that America is a forever uh, a racist nation, that all white people are villains, and all that should be punished, and all black people are victims to be compensated. Um, and and so um, we have decided in response um, to bring together, since they're using black uh, journalists as the foil here, we decided to bring together black uh, uh, scholars and activists to come together uh, to respond, but not to respond with a counter argument, but to respond with an aspirational and an inspirational narrative that disproves what they're claiming is that the, the, the present problems facing black America, 70% out of wedlock births, uh, heavily addiction to, to drugs, and the violence, black on black violence, the fact that more blacks kill each one in one year, more blacks kill other blacks than were killed by the Klan in a period of 50 years, um, that these problems are associated with the legacy of slavery and discrimination, and therefore, the only way uh, those conditions can be improved is if white people change. And so we, we, we um, challenge that 
negative um, assumptions about our future. So we've put together a series of scholars and activists, primarily black, to come together to tell the real and complete story of blacks, that we were def not defined by slavery or discrimination, but there's a legacy of resilience and, and self-renewal. And so we are, 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 are bring, so we are publishing these essays, we're developing school curriculum, so our children could be, to be taught accurate American history, not indoctrination that masquerades as history. Wow, Bob, that's amazing. So what you're saying is that there is, it's as important that our students learn about the legacy of excellence as it is that they learn about the legacy of slavery. Yeah, what, what, what's being fed to our children today by the media is that if they are having babies out of wedlock, it's not their fault. If they're killing each other in record, it's not their fault. In other words, what they're saying, there's nothing more lethal to, uh, to somebody than, than to give them a convenience excuse for failure. There is nothing more lethal and dangerous to a people to say to them that no matter what you're doing, uh, it's not your fault, and therefore you have no responsibility for your recovery. I would rather be treated, I'd rather confront an honest bigot than someone who patronizes me and treats me like a child. And that's what they're treating black. The young people are being fed this, this, this poison that somehow they are not capable of being agents of their own uplift. And Bob, throughout your career, you've worked with community leaders to develop solutions from within, and you've developed these, these Woodson principles that you, that you want to organize activities around. Can you describe what those principles are? Yeah, I think beginning with just a little background on myself. I was born in a low-income black neighborhood doing segregation, and my dad died when I was nine, leaving my mother with a fifth grade education and five children ages nine to 18 to raise in a very troubled neighborhood. And so therefore, I had to rely on my peers as a substitute family. And since uh, these seven guys were a year older than me, we stayed together for mutual aid and protection. Um, and, but when they graduated, I found myself unaffiliated. So I quit at age 17 and went into the military where uh, I, uh, uh, was trained and in, 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 on a flight crew. But then I got my degrees and uh, got my GED, came out and worked uh, hard full time at night at a juvenile jail and got my degree in four years by going all summer for four years. And so I, I learned early on that my destiny is in my hands. It's not my mother's fault. It's not my father's fault. It's not anyone's fault. So the first realization is that life may have knocked you down, but it's, it's a victim that has to get up. And so I took that attitude that my destiny is determined by what I do, not what others do who are either friends or foe. And so I've taken that into my adult life and I've developed these 10 principles. And I learned these principles by going out and meeting people who've, who've had similar struggles. But I, I didn't look at to study their struggles or their failures. I wanted to know 
what enabled them to escape their trouble, what redeemed them, what were the forces of transformation. I don't want to know how you fell down. I want to know how you got up. <laughs> you know, I, you know, and so I, I, I spent all my life studying um, uh, success. If there's seven people who failed and three succeeded, I want to know how the three succeeded. That if you want to learn how to play the piano, you don't go to five people who failed and say, tell me what mistakes you made. No, you go to two people who are successful and then you ask them what was the secret of their success. And so those are the foundation of the Woodson principles uh, that formed um, the, my, my whole life. But again, I, I learned from studying the success and resilience of people who have been in, into the worst circumstance, gang members who, who became from predators to ambassadors of peace, women who are prostitutes who went on to become responsible mothers. Uh, I, just, I just studied the people who've overcome uh, disaster in their life. And, and, and it's in, just in a pleasant journey. And you know, Bob, as I reviewed some of your remarks from you know, many events that you've spoken at, I, I, I read a couple of things that really struck me. And I'm just gonna give a, a small quote of something that you said as you talked about your evolution as a young man. And you, you described yourself as a radical liberal who was mugged by reality to really fundamentally understand what reality was. So what, what was it that caught your attention and got you to realize what the, what the reality was? I was, a, I was a real young civil rights activist at age 25. I came into Westchester, Pennsylvania, the home of Barrett Russin, who was a close friend of Dr. King. And at 25, I deposed as president of the local civil rights organization, a 40-year-old professor at Lincoln University. <laughs> and I took over control of the organization. I was the youngest member. And I, I organized people in demonstrations. And we picketed three months outside of a pharmaceutical company. And when they desegregated, they hired nine black PhD chemists. And we asked these professional brothers and sisters to join our movement. They said, no, we got these jobs because we were qualified. And so when that happened two or three times, I realized that I was in the wrong struggle. <laughs> that, that, that black community is not monolithic and that a lot of professional blacks who made up the civil rights leadership, they were practicing what I call a bait and switch game. They used the demographics of poor blacks who were in troubled neighborhood as the bait. And when the poverty funds arrived, it was spent on the non-poor to provide service to the poor. So that uh, tw 20 uh, over uh, 30, 30 of, of the $22 trillion spent on poor people by the government over the course of 50 years, only 30 cents of it ever went to the poor. So we have now a professional class of people who are really pimping the poor. And so that's what I mean. When I realized that, that the people that they were using poor people um, and, 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 and exploiting them, that's when I realized I was in the wrong struggle and I stopped looking at life through a racial prism. And instead I began to work on behalf of low income people of all races. And I did that in the, uh, following the death of Dr. King. I was uh, personally, when Dr. King was killed, I was on my way out of the civil rights movement 
but I was called back because I had a lot of influence on the street. And I got in my car and I mobilized 10 grassroots leaders, a bartender, a barber, uh, people known by people on the streets. And we physically interposed ourselves between the police, the National Guard, and the young rioters. And because we had a reputation and was trusted by them, we were able to stop them from, from, from uh, causing any death. So we had no deaths or anything. But then I, I organized them to speak for themselves. And so they set up a separate organization made up of 500 low-income leaders that was separate and apart from the middle-class civil rights organization. And so they asked me, would I lead it? I said, no, this is your organization. I will advise you. And so I helped them to set up. I acted as an advisor. And then I was gone from the civil rights movement, out of town, going to work on behalf of low-income people of all races, black, white, red. And so my whole life from that moment on was spent working on behalf of low-income people. Race is not the biggest problem facing low-income people today. Poverty and, 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 and despair is. Wow, Bob, when you speak, it's, it's, it's so wonderful to have you on. It's so interesting. Don't you think most people want to be empowered in their lives, that they want to have a sense that they do control their own destiny? Why is it that you think this message of it's not your fault, why, why does that have such resonance, do you think? The reason is, and this is, this is a very hard statistic, but two out of 10 whites with, with college education works for government, six out of 10 blacks with professional work for government. You have our middle class anchored in a sector of our society that needs poor people to serve. So we have structural reasons why. So I, if you're working, if, if your career depends upon my being dependent, it doesn't matter how compassionate you are, there are structural uh, uh, perver their perverse incentives for you to make me independent. So we have a lot of people locked in situations that causes good people to do bad things. Most of the people in these positions, they want to be helpful, but they're in a, locked in a situation where their careers and their income depends upon other people being dependent. That's why they don't want to address the problem. If race were the problem, then why are poor Blacks suffering failure in institutions run by their own people? All of these cities where you have all this violence and, and poor education, they have been run by Black politicians for the 50 years. They were the ones who have expended the $22 trillion on programs to aid the poor. But one of the ways that they can avoid having to ask the question, why are Blacks young poor Blacks failing in systems run by their own people is to, is to use a, dif a, a distraction to say, oh, it's institutional racism. It's, it's, it's um, structural racism. Well, what does that mean? It means that you've been running, you've been the mayor of the city for all these years, you've been in Congress all these years, and either white, you didn't know white people were manipulating you, <laughs> or were you complicit in it? Or you're ignorant of it? <laughs> you either, either you have to answer those questions or you can do what they do, deflect attention away from those inconvenient questions. As long as I can keep other people 
attention directed towards white people, then they can avoid being labeled traitors. Because I think what's worse than a bigot is a traitor. Mayor Nagin, who was a mayor of New Orleans during Katrina, who went to jail because he was filling his pockets with bribes. Nine members of William Jefferson's family, Congressman Jefferson was stuffing his freezer with money. Nine members of his family who served in state and local government were indicted for stealing money that was supposed to go to poor blacks. You don't hear that discussion. We don't ask the question, how much of the failure of poor blacks in these cities are attributed to corrupt politicians? Kwame Kirkpatrick in Detroit, 40 members of his administration went to jail for stealing money, particularly from black pensioners. But we don't discuss that. We don't ask uh, uh, to what extent the sufferings of poor blacks attributed to corrupt or incompetent officials who are running those programs. We can't have a discussion of that. No, we can't. And you know, Brother Woodson, your, your commentary reminds me of conversations I've had with my son who's 16. And, you know, he asked the question many years ago, how were Africans enslaved? How did that happen? You know, the narrative is we were victims and the evil white man grabbed us, put us on boats. Well, of course, we, you know, anyone who studies the situation knows that Africans were involved hand in hand with the institutions. It could not have happened without African participation. And the, the ugliness of that is if you, if you literally believe the, the view that all oh, Africans did nothing wrong, it was the white man, then the natural conclusion is that we are in fact inferior, that we were, we were, we were so easy to be taken over. We were like children just being picked up by a more advanced group. It's only through looking at it truthfully that you recognize, no, there were bad decisions made by local leaders over long periods of time to, to sell their prisoners of war and to sell their neighbor. And it just, it fed on itself. But it, it's the same fundamental irresponsible view and the lack of responsibility that, that, can, that again, can't be discussed. Just, you know, one more point on this. So my son, you know, and he's, he's, he loves history. He studied it well. Um, he was having a discussion with a bunch of, of white students at his high school one day, and you know they're they're very much woke, and the, you know the, the white students I think are more into Black Lives Matter than than the black students, and he, they were talking about <laughs> slavery. And my son raised the point: Well, you understand that Africans were intimately involved with the creation of that institution; that many of them became wealthy. They shamed him into silence. They literally canceled these are white people canceling my son who by the way his mother was born in africa born in kush one of the oldest civilizations and and in fact in her history there were people in her family that owned other africans it's the truth but he was literally canceled out of the conversation and literally removed from it by white young kids it's ridiculous but that's why one of the things that bothers me most today is at least during uh, early periods within the black community, there were centers, aggressive centers of debate uh, within our group as to what our future should look like. Mm. Early on, you had Marcus Garvey, who was a recolonizationist. You had Nat Turner, who was an insurrectionist. 
And then you had Booker T. Washington, who's accommodationist. These are three trends that just that 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 was just debated. Uh, and then later on in the 60s, you got Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, the Republican New Africa, a SNCC, um, the NAACP, all of these. But, but what, what was important about that time is that it was turmoil, it was debate, it was challenge, but it was, we were talking about what would be the path forward for us. Yes. We were not influenced by those outside of us. There is no center of debate right now. I think white radicals have silenced what's left of the civil rights movement to the point where they're just agents of, of these white radicals. They, that, there's no civil rights leadership. There, where are their voices when black businesses are being firebombed? Where are they with the black on black violence? Where are their voices when people are desecrating the statue of, of, of um, Frederick Douglass? And even Arthur Ashe had red paint splashed on him. Oh my goodness. And so the question is, where are they? There is no center of debate or discussion within the black community anymore. It's being totally taken over by forces that are hostile to this country. Well, Bob, you are inspiring a lot of us to be that voice, to be that counter argument to this narrative that's telling young black people that they have no power in their lives, that the force of white supremacy is so large, they, ha they don't have the ability to overcome that, which is crazy. And so maybe on a closing note, as, as you know, Nike and I, 30 years ago, when we first created The Invisible Men, there is, we created a film giving advice to Daryl, a 16-year-old imaginary kid who lives in Forgotten USA, and we provided advice back to Daryl way back when. I wonder if you have a few words that you would provide to the Daryls in this country who may be hearing all of this, who may be thinking, wow, is the American dream even within my grasp? What, what would you say to that young man? If I could just use a sports analogy, and that is real outstanding athletes who achieve, first of all, they work harder than other athletes. Secondly, they understand that real champions score in the face of opposition and not demand that the opposition be removed. <laughs> if you are driving down the court on a breakaway, you'll slow up so your opposition can catch up so <laughs> you can slam it in his face. <laughs> now, what would happen if these athletes had a coach who said to them before they got on the court, well, this other team is bigger than we are. They got more experience than we are. We have, they got better training facilities. They're tougher. Now, and so I don't see how, unless they stop blocking our shots, <laughs> they're not gonna be able to score. <laughs> now, would you take advice from a coach like that? <laughs> no, no way, no way, no way. So I would say to Daryl, go with the coach 
who encourages you to work hard and score in the face of opposition, not in the absence of opposition. True words, Bob Woodson. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Invisible Men. You represent everything that we are trying to do on this show. So thank you for inspiring all of us. Thank you, Elder. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 